0: Now for agribusiness news, markets, and weather from Studio C. This is Agriculture Today.
1: The American Climate Corps, just in the first few weeks, Of being online got over 50,000 expressions of interest from folks all across the country.
2: White House National Climate Advisor Ali Zaidi.
1: And over the last few weeks, actually, we've been hosting these listening sessions to help understand how best to structure the program. Over 2,200 folks have joined four listening sessions. And one of the things that we've taken away from that is that different individuals want to engage in this climate solutions economy. In different ways, some people want to participate in installing charging stations. Others want to learn about putting solar on rooftops and others want to figure out how to engage with nature in a way that delivers value, whether it's to their family farm or value to our public land.
0: Ag news now agriculture today.
1: You know, this is a really big deal.
2: Herbie Ziskin is Deputy Director of White House Communications, unveiling the American Climate Corps.
1: Today we announced uh, here at the White House that uh, the United States Department of Agriculture is going to be starting another piece of the American Climate Corps uh, called the Working Lands Climate Corps. It's part of the American Climate Corps, and it's going to provide training Uh, and job opportunities for young people who want to work in uh, climate resilience, who want jobs in combating the climate crisis, creating more resilient communities. And it's a really, really big deal because, you know, our broader effort, President Biden's broader effort is not only to combat the climate crisis, which we all see and feel in our communities from flooding to extreme heat to extreme weather, um, but he wants to turn this into an opportunity, an opportunity to create jobs, an opportunity to create opportunity uh, in rural America, in big cities. And so the American Climate Corps is is training people to do jobs, um, bolstering community resilience, environmental justice, clean energy. Uh, it's, it's modeled after the Civilian Conservation Corps, if you recall, from the Great Depression era. This is about getting the next generation of young people on the job, in paying jobs, um, doing work in our communities to combat the climate crisis. So we think it's a really big deal, and we're excited about it.
2: So some are already asking the question, where will this Climate core come from?
1: People can uh, apply for these jobs and learn more about opportunities. We've had over 50,000 young people reach out. Uh, it's actually really easy. If someone's listening, they go to whitehouse.gov slash climate corps. WhiteHouse.gov slash climate corps, where so they can sign up and learn more about opportunities that are out there in their communities. And, you know, Tony, this is this is part of President Biden's broader agenda to combat the climate crisis. He passed into law, as folks may know, uh, the largest investment in the history of of um, any country to combat the climate crisis. And it's created hundreds of thousands of jobs in electric vehicles, in solar and wind. this is about turning this crisis into opportunity. Uh, He's launched the American Climate Corps. He's taken action to conserve tens of millions of acres of land and waters uh, so that we have healthy communities all over this country. Uh, And so that's what today's announcement is part of, and that's what President Biden's focus has been when it comes to addressing the climate crisis and in particular in rural America.
2: There are those in agriculture concerned that this is leaving the original conservationist, farmers and ranchers, behind. But Ziskin says...
1: This is about farmers and ranchers working with with young people, with entrepreneurs who are starting clean energy businesses um, to, to take action on, on the climate crisis. And, you know, we've seen, just since President Biden took office, he passed uh, the bipartisan infrastructure law, working with Republicans so that we've got uh, high-speed Internet, modern water systems, clean drinking water um, all over America, including, of course, in rural America. We've seen uh, electric vehicle makers, semiconductor companies starting and, and growing their plants in rural communities. Um, and so from, from those investments to farmers who are, who are starting to benefit from investments in climate-smart agriculture, we're confident that we're going to bring all sorts of diverse folks together, farmers, ranchers, young people, people from urban areas, people from rural areas, to tackle this crisis head on and turn it into an opportunity.
2: And this is Agriculture Today.
0: With Agriculture Today, here's Tony St. James.
3: Inventory report came out this last Wednesday, and as expected, it showed that we had liquidated last year by about 2% on the total herd, as well as the beef cow herd.
2: Kevin Good is with cattle Facts. He was speaking at the recent CattleCon24 and the cattle Facts Ag Outlook Seminar
3: on the coal cattle cycle. With that said, we've experienced five years now of liquidation after five years of expansion. From a big-picture standpoint, I do think we have to recognize that we've got a situation in here where Mother Nature is going to be the major headwind, as Matt alluded to, as we go forward. So despite the fact that we are and will have record high calf values going forward, we do need some help out of mother nature before it's all said and done. We always use this slide as a sustainability slide because we do as an industry do more with less. And you can see that beef production continues to move higher into the right. At the same time, your total herd moves higher or lower into the right at the same time. So with that said, let's build this factory. In the rearview mirror in 2023, on average, half of the U.S. beef cow herd was in dry conditions and a third was in drought conditions. And until that changes, unfortunately, it's going to be a hard lift to get the herd turned around. Now, Matt alluded to the fact that we do have better moisture conditions here through the winter and going through the spring. But unfortunately, uh, that's going to change as we go on into the summer. With that said, you can see the beef cow slaughter this past year was down substantially. Unfortunately, if we think about culling rate, two years ago it was record high at 13.5%. Last year is at 12.4%, the third highest in the last 30 years. So unfortunately, even with our forecast for this year, for slaughter to be down 700,000 plus, and of that, close to 600,000 would be on the beef cow side, and about 100,000 on the dairy cow side, that would still be a mild liquidation pace. Another thing to think about here, and Mike will follow up, follow me up and talk about leverage and price outlook. Think about what this means for your coal cow values as it go forward. If you think about from the peak to the trough, looking at the cattle herd, basically in slaughter, that's about a 23, 24% drop in cow slaughter from the peak to the trough as we go forward. Obviously, that's going to be very supportive to 90 trims and also for your cold cow value. With that said, what do we expect the herd to look like as we go through the next 12 months? You know, we talked about the cow side. On the heifer side, unfortunately, we did not expand last year. In fact, heifers on feed approached 40% of the total, and that needs to be somewhere back closer to 36 or 37% to get to a point where we would suggest that we're doing some expansion on the heifer side. So with that combined, we would suggest that this year will be a mild liquidation year. And it is, if you wanna think about it from a cycle standpoint, the last cycle was a V bottom. This cycle is much more of a saucer or a trough bottom. It's gonna take longer to build this herd back up. So I think we need to recognize that from a big picture standpoint. Another point of the decline last year of over 700,000 head Two-thirds of that was basically from Nebraska south to Texas, including Missouri. So I think we all get it, the big cow states. Those are the areas that we need better moisture in if we really are going to turn the factory around.
2: Again, that's Kevin Good with Cattle Facts. And this is Agriculture Today. This is Agriculture Today.
3: We start the year with a cattle on feed number above a year ago.
2: Kevin Good with Cattle Facts
3: on the latest slaughter numbers. And you say, how can that be, Kevin? We've had five years of liquidation, and we still got more cattle locked up than a year ago. Well, in the text box, you can see some of the reasons why. We didn't keep the heifers back. We put them on feed. We imported a lot more Mexican cattle last year than the year prior, particularly in the fall months. We, turnover rate is slower. We're feeding cattle longer, more days on feed. All of those combined means your on-feed numbers you start Jan 1 are up 2%. January placements in our data down substantially, probably going to be down close to double digit when it's all said and done. You combine that over the next few months, we do anticipate a cattle on-feed number that will drop below a year ago as you go from Feb to March and will remain that way through the remainder of this year. Now, when we talk about slaughter as we go through this year, We're going to talk about the correlation between cattle on feed versus the total supply cattle on feed as well as the feeder cattle supply outside of feedlots. That's a much higher correlation when it's all said and done. And if you look at that number, your total population of feeder cattle and calves down roughly about 800,000 head, well, you've already got a quarter million more locked up. means you've got a million less out there potentially to place. And so as you think about the placement patterns, not only just going to be in January in the rearview mirror, but consistently as we go forward, we should have placement numbers that start to continually be below a year ago, dropping your on-feed number. The correlation between this number and slaughter for the year is substantially higher than when you look strictly at what's on-feed on January 1. So I think we need to remember that when we look at our slaughter forecast. Also, we have to think about what we're bringing in from Canada and Mexico. Last year, as we mentioned, we brought a lot more feeder cattle in from Mexico. Still dry south of the border. We still have high prices. We would suggest that we'll continue to draw more cattle up from Mexico. Canada, obviously, their herd has been in a mild, slow leak from BSC. Really, over the last 25 years, we really don't see more cattle coming in from Canada. So with that said, that's a supplement as far as our feeder cattle supplies as we go forward through this year. So let's roll that together. When we start thinking about the slaughter forecast as we go through this year, you can see anticipation here for a 3-plus percent drop in slaughter. Last year, down a million. This year, less than that. As you go forward, I think you get the message as we think about it. We're not even expanding yet. We're still liquidating which means when we have the big vision and think about where the supplies are going to be the tightest, at the earliest, the tightest supplies are in 2026. And so we need to have that vision as we go forward and think about the market not only for this year, but longer term over the next two to three years. So obviously, as you think about the supply side, slaughter is going to be tighter. We're suggesting it's going to be a tail of two halves as far as where the cattle are available. I mentioned earlier you've got an on-feed number that's above a year ago. Despite that... We don't envision slaughter being above a year ago really for any length of time through the first half of the year. If you think about the cost of gains where they're at today compared to the value of fed cattle, break-evens are high, cattle are losing money, we're going to have a tendency to push cattle forward. you got a premium or a carry in the board, They think about where April's at, think about June, think about August, all of that's going to suggest that the cattle will continue to be pushed forward in here and level out the supplies to some degree. And we would suggest the biggest year-over-year year decline will be in the second half of the year, matching up with that million-head less feeder cattle and calf supplies outside of feedlots as we see them today.
2: It's Agriculture Today.
0: Ag News Now. Agriculture Today.
4: When we look at the problems that we face, we need to be fully aware that there is no pot of money. There is no surplus funds there is no money to give to ukraine we don't have enough money to pay our bills
2: those in agriculture concerned there will not be new money for a new farm bill kentucky senator Rand paul on a relief bill for ukraine israel and taiwan
4: we do not have enough money to pay for we we budget every year in fact the entire budget that congress votes on is borrowed let me make that very clear The entire budget, not a little bit of it, not half of it, the entire budget is borrowed. This would be like someone saying, well, yeah, I don't have any money for rent and I don't have a job. I'm going to borrow the money for my rent. That's essentially where we are. Two-thirds of spending up here is entitlements. All of the tax revenue from every source that comes into the federal government is only enough to pay for Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and food stamps. Everything else is borrowed. And we don't vote on the entitlements. The entitlements are on autopilot. What do we vote on? We vote on what is military discretionary and non-military discretionary. $1.5 trillion. So people talk about, you know, what is a trillion dollars? Well, we're running a $1.5 trillion deficit in one year. So in two years, $3 trillion is accumulated. How much is a trillion? How much is $3 trillion? If you take trillion in $1 bills and you stack them up, trillion would reach to the moon. 240,000 miles high would be the stack of $1 bills. That's what we borrow in a two-year period. But it's accelerating. Just in the last week, the Federal Reserve chairman said, the debt problem is urgent. Jamie Dimon, head of one of the big banks, Chase Morgan, says, the problem is urgent. Some of the economists and authors who wrote about the collapse in 2008 that predicted it coming have said the debt is an urgent problem. So how does the Senate respond to some of the keenest minds in the country saying that we have a debt crisis? They respond by sending a $100 billion of your money overseas. And it's not money we've got on hand. It's not cash on hand. We don't have any money. We are flat broke. People say it's for our national defense. We have these cold warriors who still believe in the domino theory. They say, we are going to somehow be overrun by communists if we don't do this. But we have no money. There is no money to be sent over there. It all has to be borrowed. The title of this bill should be Ukraine first, America last, if they were being honest. 61% of Americans work paycheck to paycheck, Eight out of ten Americans who make $50,000 don't have enough money on hand to pay their bills. If something goes wrong for them, you think they're excited about having their tax dollars shipped off to Ukraine? Ukraine first, America last. That's what this bill is about. It's about giving the middle finger to America. It's about giving the middle finger to every working class man and woman in America it is an insult. It should be rejected. It should be soundly rejected. And we should get back to the business of this country, which is protecting our borders. We've got a real problem. Democrats didn't even seem to think there was a border problem until a few hundred of them were shipped to New York. And all of a sudden, they think there's a problem now. So they put them up in a fancy hotel and they spend millions of dollars coddling them. But mark my words, the American people are smarter than the elitist up here. The title of this bill is... And ought to be, if they were honest, Ukraine first and America last. That's what the author should have called this bill.
2: It's agriculture today.
5: This is Agriculture Today. So the last couple of years prices were, you know, historically high. We had a couple of years of La Nina that, that Matt talked about, and then we had China come in and buy a little over seven hundred million bushels of corn two and a half years ago
2: troy Applehans is with cattle facts
5: and that tightened stocks to use up and saw those prices rally then in 2023 we saw an increase in corn acres of about 7.8 million acres and we also had a record yield that ultimately boosted production by about 1.66 billion bushels When you combine that with some increased demand that did not offset the increase of production, where exports were up about 450 million bushels, you saw a little bit more ethanol, a little bit more feed and residual, but you didn't see that offset. So we had about 800 million bushels more ending stocks than the year prior. And stocks to use went to nearly 15%. So with that, stocks to use are now in a comfortable position. So we're starting off the 2023-2024 in a comfortable position, and we're going to head into the 2024-2025 marketing year with those expectations.
2: He also talks about oil production.
5: The U.S. is now producing record amounts of oil. And when you look at this chart, the global oil production is not a record number today. So... 2020, COVID hit, oil production dropped globally, but we're seeing the increase in oil production globally, record oil production here in the US. So what's that ultimately mean? When we look forward, we think that consumption and production is about in equilibrium. That pre-pandemic trend line that's on there, you have that growing, that longer term trend, but it's not a real steep uptrend. And oil production continues to increase, but consumption continues to decrease. The miles driven continue to slow down. So ultimately, we're in a lot more of a supply and demand equilibrium when it comes to global production and consumption of oil.
2: And what's ahead for energy prices?
5: So what's the expectation for 2024? Ultimately, not much is gonna change. We expect to see the average for crude oil at around $80 a barrel. 2023, we averaged about $78 a barrel. You come back down here and you look at retail diesel, averaging about $4.43 a barrel. Our forecast average for 2024 is right around $4.30, I should say a gallon. So what's gonna go on with oil, right? Because oil is a lot more global and it's a lot more political. So if you're just looking at supply and demand, these would be the estimates that we have. But we do need to pay attention to the global dynamics, especially when we're talking about OPEC and OPEC+, where they could increase or decrease that supply on a pretty much a moment's notice. So it's not so much the supply and demand as it is the geopolitics that we would see relative to those oil markets. When you're looking at natural gas, you know, we're talking about an average a little bit higher. 2023 was about $2.51, and we would expect to see an average about $2.90 this year.
2: It's Agriculture Today.
0: This is Agriculture Today.
6: We're in an environment where we've had a big transition here in the course of the last few years. And obviously that transitions to the favor of the the cattle
2: producer. Mike Murphy with Cattle Facts at the recent CattleCon 24 in Orlando.
6: That leverage shifting coming back into our favor due to the fact that we're getting more of a balance between the number of cattle that we need to harvest that Monday through Friday time frame Relative to that underlying capacity. And clearly it's been a difficult period in here over the course of the last four or five years as you think about it and you look at this slide of just how unbalanced we were. This last year of 23, we got back more in line. And this year, we're actually going to be in a scenario when we start talking about a, you know, roughly a three quarter of a million head decline in fed cattle slaughter. And you start to look at that relative to that 40 hour work week we're going to be in a very good position from a leverage standpoint. That is going to funnel more dollars back into the production side of the business. And it really starts at starting to see that that leverage between the cattle feeder and the packing segment. This is something that we share with you all the time, that Fed price less the drop is a percent of the cutout. And as you can see here for 2024, we've got that dialed in at about 57%. That is roughly what we define as an implied break-even for the packing and processing segment. It's not a perfect science when we start to try to identify what those margins are, but it does give us a pretty good perspective and sort of a benchmark as we start to look at things in terms of that leverage or margin component.
2: And when we talk cattle on feed, Murphy says, look at regional differences.
6: You know, today you've got significant increases in cattle on feed on, as of January 1 that we're both in the states of Texas and Kansas, and yet when you go farther north, if you 're looking at like Colorado, Nebraska, or the midwest you 've got on feed tools that are about even or even slightly below year ago levels that 's been a little bit of a theme in here in the course of the last few years, and so one of those things that has arrived from that is where at certain times of the year, especially in that spring and summer time frame. The Northern region, or the way that this is actually shown on your chart, the Southern region is at a discounted market versus the North. The North is at a premium. Now we've got to some extreme levels in terms of the last couple of years of that price spread. I'm not sure we would forecast those types of of values in terms of the differential here this spring, but overall, over the course of the next several months, we're gonna find more weeks than not where Nebraska is a premium market versus the Southern Plains. And that is, again, just that reflection of that overall on feed totals that you find those differences between uh, the the different regions. This is probably a structural shift that is here to stay. You know, we always think about the concept when corn goes back down, as as Troy alluded to earlier, where we find some of that cattle feeding moving back into the Eastern Nebraska Midwest region. And I believe the current situation that we are today and, and where we're gonna be here over the course of the next few years, I don't find that we're gonna find as much of that feeding kind of move back into that area. So this is a structural shift that's here to stay. For those that are in that northern regions, from a risk management standpoint, this is a very positive to your bottom line because of the basis relationships that you can capture when you're seeing there at a more of a premium market in that part of the country.
2: And this is Agriculture Today.
0: You're listening to Agriculture Today.
4: Brazil this time of year focuses on soybean harvest and planting of second crop corn. And much like the bean crop in Brazil, USDA's February outlook expects lower corn production in that nation.
1: This is a crop that's just being planted, so it's a little bit too soon to start talking about yield expectations. But this is reflecting a reduction in area expectations, planted area. Given the fact that prices are relatively soft, there's not an incentive there to increase the area. So that's the reasoning behind our 3 million ton cut in Brazil's production forecast.
4: World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Mark Jekinowski says the Brazilian corn production reduction is behind a similar adjustment down for global corn production forecast. That translates in the world corn balance sheet to month over month lowering of categories, including a tightening of ending stocks. I'm Rod Bain reporting in Washington, D.C.